If you have a prayer slip, Brother Mike and Brother Ron are going to head up the aisles now. You can pass that down to the aisle and they will collect that from you. If you would, turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 25 if you're not already there. I've gone into fairy tale writing, apparently. <laughs> this is a, uh, an interesting way to begin a, uh, to begin a sermon. We're going to uh, explore a little fairy tale together. There once was a farrier who made horseshoes at a furious rate. The kingdom where he lived was at war, and everyone was working hard to prepare. As he worked, a red-hot horseshoe escaped his tongs and badly burned his body. Unable to work, he went to have his injury treated. On his way out of the now silent workshop, he shook his fist toward heaven. Why me, he asked. Why now? Doesn't God know our army needs every horse that can muster? Does he want us to lose? Embittered and dejected, the man went home to recover. Back in the workshop, the lowly apprentice sadly prepared the workshop to be closed for a while. He put away the tools and extinguished the fires and shuttered the windows. And just before leaving, he noticed a single horseshoe lying on the ground. Mistaking it for a completed shoe, he placed it on the stack with the others. When the enemy army invaded, the farrier's little town was quickly overrun. The enemy troops commandeered weapons, food, and supplies. And when the workshop was found, it was emptied of all its tools and equipment and, of course, the horseshoes. The farrier again lamented his terrible misfortune and wondered why God would allow even the theft of his livelihood. But when the armies of the two kingdoms finally came to battle, the enemy commanders suffered a terrible calamity. His horse, it seemed, had been fitted with the weak, unfinished horseshoe from the farrier's shop. And at just the right moment, the shoe broke and caught the ground, sending the horse and its rider tumbling. In the ensuing confusion, the enemy commander was trampled and his troops fell into disarray. How unfairly the farrier accused God. All of his suffering came about not to harm him, but to save him and the kingdom with him. Who but God could have orchestrated all the tiny details necessary to end the battle and preserve the kingdom in such a way? Are we not the same? The flat tire that spares us from the automobile accident? The rainy weather that keeps us from a sports injury? But is this way of thinking really biblical? Is this really the way we should look at things that befall us? Uh, that all our suffering has some greater purpose? Or is this just a rosy way of thinking that will keep us encouraged. And if God has indeed laid in our suffering with purpose, is it then wrong to appeal to him when we suffer or when we hurt? Do we ask for the suffering to end? And if not, what do we ask for? Well, I think that the story of Rebecca uh, is a powerful teaching about a lot of these things. We first met Rebecca in Genesis 24 when Abraham's servant is sworn to bring home a wife for Isaac. The servant proposes to bring her back to his land and to marry the son of his master. And like Abraham before her, there are a lot of things that Rebecca doesn't know. She's going to have to say yes in faith without having many of those questions answered. This for Rebecca is what I call the Hebrew moment. The Hebrew moment. This is how she became a Hebrew. She is shown to be a fit for the family of Abraham. Hebrew means 
literally from the other side, presumably of the river or the mountain, right? From the other side, as if to call the one, one who has crossed over, one who has crossed over. And Abraham believed God and he said, I will go without knowing where God would take him. And that really, that going without knowing really becomes the, the characteristic uh, thought when we think of Abraham, we think of Abraham believing God. It's, it's yes to God when he can't see how it will all work out. He does that again with the sacrifice of Isaac. God says, go up on the mountain and take the boy and sacrifice. And he says, I will go, I'll obey when he can't see how it's all going to work out. And Rebecca now has that same opportunity. She will have to say, I will go. Rebecca left her family behind and she crossed over. She showed herself to be a fit for the Hebrews as she crossed over. She became the wife of Isaac, Abraham's son, the heir of God's promise. But now, chapter 25 brings us to a moment of incredible tension. Abraham the patriarch has died. Um, All of God's promises for his offspring now hang on Isaac And Isaac has no offspring either. So how will the chosen seed continue? This will be the natural question in the mind of the reader of Genesis. They've been working their way through. They've come to this point where God has chosen this man. He said, I'll make you a great nation and I'm going to to bless you. And in, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He's hung all of these promises on an heir. And now we see the heir, but now we need a new one. And so uh, as you read through Genesis, there's this formula uh, that comes up over and over and over again, this, this, this figure of speech in the language, these are the generations. These are the generations. So if you look at verse 19, we see that here. It's familiar. If we, had, if we had begun at the beginning of Genesis and read all the way through up into now, we would be used to this formula. These are the generations. In chapter five, these are the generations of Adam. What follows is 30 verses or so that take us from Adam to Noah. You know the portions that I'm referencing here. Adam fathered Seth and Seth fathered Enoch, right? These are the begots, right? And so in chapter 10, these are the generations of Noah. And then another 30 verses or so follow taking us from Noah's descendants on down and uh, giving their geographical boundaries and all these things. In chapter 11, these are the generations of Shem, 18 verses or so to take us from Shem to Abram and Lot. We even see this formula earlier in chapter 25, a little before our section. These are the generations of Ishmael. And there are six verses there to tell us all about Ishmael's descendants and their whereabouts. And so with that reading experience, with that context in mind, we come to verse 19 and we get this familiar phrase, these are the generations. So we're expecting, boy, see how fruitful Isaac has been right? These are the generations. Here we go. And what we get instead, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham followed Isaac. Yes. Verse 20, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife. Yes. And, and then we get the twist. And Isaac prayed because Rebekah was barren. And so like Sarah before her, Rebekah experiences barrenness And the main difference between um, the story of Abram uh, and uh, Sarah and their barrenness and this story now is that Abram was told that he would have offspring as early as Genesis 12. 
God mentions offspring to him as early as Genesis 12 when he was 75 years old. And Isaac is born to Abraham nine chapters later. Nine chapters and 25 years later. That's how long we wait for Isaac. We wait for God's provision for um, 25 years. And, and here, though, we have Rebecca's barrenness, which is, which is 20 years. It's certainly not short. But here we have Rebecca's barrenness of 20 years, and it's introduced and responded to and resolved in a single verse. And I think the writer of Genesis wants us to notice that. He's given us nine chapters of the conflict, the the tension of who is going to be the heir of these promises. And then we get to uh, chapter 25 and we get to Isaac and Rebekah and we have all that in, in one verse. Isaac prays for her and God answers the prayer, a single verse. So why would that happen? Well, I think with Abraham and Sarah, the main point of the, the story is that God has said there will be a child and there isn't. So nine chapters and 25 years of waiting, sometimes faithfully, other times less so, uh, they're preserved for the reader to see and experience in that way that story communicates to us. We get to experience along with the characters. And so Abraham and Sarah, um, they wait and, and the question is, how is this tension between what God said and what we actually see? How is that going to be resolved? I mean, how, how could God keep his promise? How, how is this going to be possible? Abraham and Sarah responded with laughter. It was so preposterous uh, when they heard it, each in their, in their own time laughed at this possibility. Old people like us don't have babies, they said. So the birth of Isaac, when it comes, is a laughter-filled celebration. Yes, yes, God keeps his promises. He is able to do what he promised to do, and he always keeps his promises. And so barrenness was this huge, looming problem that lasted nine chapters, and we see a miraculous resolution which proved that God was able to do what's impossible for us. But perhaps more importantly, it proves that he's always faithful. He always keeps his word, even when we can't reconcile what he's promised to what we see. The context of that, that Sarah's long journey through barrenness begs the question. So again, why one verse for Rebecca? And simply put, I don't think barrenness is the problem anymore. Now, I'm not saying it's not a problem, and I don't want to minimize Isaac and Rebecca would have They would have been waiting and praying and wrestling with this uh, for all those 20 years. It is a problem, but for the reader of Genesis, it's not a problem. Why? We've already seen what God can do, right? We've already already addressed barrenness. We've had a nine-chapter clinic on God sovereignly opening and closing the womb. We know that even in old age, Sarah can give birth. So as the reader, we're not quite as worried about, okay, well, what's going to happen with the heir uh, here? And so the question this time is not whether there's going to be an offspring. The question this time is the offspring itself, or should we say themselves, plural, because indeed the problem now is there are indeed two. What's going to happen now? What will God do with the promise when there are two? And so that really is the first main point that I want us to kind of latch onto here in the text. In this world, we are never safe from the next problem. We're never safe from the next problem. So 
Here we have all of this tension built up and who's going to be the heir? God provides an heir. It's Isaac. And then Isaac comes along and we don't have a wife for Isaac. And then we meet Rebecca and God provides for that. And then she's barren, just like, just like Sarah was. And so it's just one problem after another in this life. And, the, and that conflict is a big part of what drives this story and drives us uh, to the Lord's answer for these uh, troubles. And so this story nestled right into Genesis 25. It's surrounded by trouble and conflict. From Abraham's death on the forefront to uh, the, the argument and the tension that carries on between Jacob and Esau. But right here in this pregnancy, we see this big, big um, uh, problem, this big, big looming, uh, excruciating experience for Rebecca. And the reader is meant to ask, will the baby live? Why is there so much pain and turmoil in the womb? If the child in Rebecca doesn't survive, what will God do then? How can his promise be true? And I think it's the same for us. We go from problem to problem to problem to problem. The student graduates but finds that he must start the learning process again with greater challenges, more responsibilities, more facets of life demanding time, right? The honeymoon is wonderful, but you come home to the mortgage, right? One, one problem after another, and, and that's the way this world is. That's the way life is. And so we have to think about what is it that God has really promised to us? Well, what he's promised to do is to walk with us and not to leave us alone as we face those problems. And we're going to see that as we go ahead. So suffering and seeking, what Rebecca calls out for uh, from God and God's answer. So Rebecca endures 20 years of barrenness and then suffered terribly in her pregnancy. And I just think of the hardship of that and the irony of praying and pleading and waiting for 20 years only uh, to find that the answer to your wait comes with greater suffering uh, than you had before. That, that is such a trial, such a hardship. The text doesn't tell us much detail about what she was experiencing in the pregnancy other than it, it's just simply that the, the children, and by the way, it's kind of interesting there that the narrator of the story sort of tips his hand there to the reader, right? If, if you read at the beginning of verse 22, the children, you now know more about the pregnancy than Rebecca does, right? So it's interesting how the narrator kind of gives the reader that. This struggle, coupled with her agonizing cry, tells us that whatever happened was, was, was really alarming, truly alarming. Uh, she's fearful, she's afraid, she's suffering, she's hurting. And so all these questions come. What, what if the pregnancy is lost? What if Rebecca dies? And so all these what ifs, all these panicked questions can come to our minds. But here in verse 22, we learn something that's very important about Rebecca. And I think we gain kind of a a point of application from the story. Rebecca's a woman of faith. Rebecca's a woman of faith. We've seen that already when the servant goes to get her and and her family kind of tries to hold her up from going, you know, maybe she could stay longer with us and all these things. And the servant says, you got to decide. Are you going to go? Are you going to cross over? Are you going to go or will you stay? And Rebecca says, I will go. She, she says, I will go, even though she can't see what's going to happen. And so we know that to be true. That's her Hebrew moment in the last chapter. But we see more evidence of that now. Her suffering drives her to her God, not away from him. The wording that's used here in the Hebrew text is the same wording, the same phrases that are used uh, for example, when the kings later in the Old Testament would, would say, 
seek first the word of the Lord? Should we go up against this, this nation? It, it's the formula used to consult God through an oracle, through a prophet. We want to know what the will of the Lord is. Should we go up in battle against this enemy? And the Lord would say yes or no. That's the same formula, the same language uh, that's used here uh, of Rebecca. She, she goes. And so um, her suffering drives her to God, not away from him. Isaac prayed for his wife. We've seen she was barren. And Isaac prayed and his prayer was answered. But now in her suffering, Rebecca goes and bends the ear of some prophet. I've got to hear from God. And so I think we should note the heart-wrenching cry as well. Most translations uh, supply a little bit. They supply a little bit more than what's there in the Hebrew, trying to make some complete English thought uh, out of this, this phrase. The ESV uh, says, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Uh, NASB, if it is so, why am I in this condition? Some even go as far as, if it is so, why do I live? I think that might be a little, a little bit of a stretch, but we certainly can appreciate um, the, the temptation of, of despair in that deep suffering that she's in. And so um, I, think, I think really the terseness of the Hebrew is, is, is very effective. It's three words in the, in the Hebrew, if, thus, why? If, thus, why? What do you think about asking God why? I know, you know, we can all be spiritual and say, well, I've never had to do that. I don't, <laughs> I'm not questioning God. I think, I think we all do that. I think we all do that. But we might ask the question, is it wrong to do that? Is it wrong to ask God why? And I suppose it depends on the condition of the heart that asks. If it's, um, if it's like the farrier in the, in the story uh, from before, which, by the way, was kind of prompted by a, a, a single thought uh, by, by John Piper. He asked this question about the horseshoe, uh, and I filled in the blank, so I can't take credit for the story. But that farrier in the, in the story, if that's the way we come to God asking why, I, I think that's probably, probably sin. If we come in an accu- accusational way, um, he's not obligated to answer, of course. He's not obligated to, to answer us or even Rebecca here, but he sometimes answers. And boy, does he choose to answer Rebecca here. Um, some scholars who study Hebrew poetry and, and prose, they, they analyze the structure of the narrative as much as, as, much as the, the words themselves. But what is the structure? What is the literary uh, art that is happening here in, in Hebrew? Um, they, they call this section that we've, that we've read today a chiasmus. Um, a chias- if, you, if you like English, you, you, you like literary uh, study and so forth, it's an inverse parallelism. And, and you don't have to sweat the fancy names, but just, just know that there, it's, a, it's an interesting order that the writer of Genesis has given to this story. A very interesting order. You can see a little bit of it if you, if you look at verse 20 and you begin with Isaac is 40 years old, Right? And then, and then you look down in verse 26 and you see Isaac was 60 years old. Th- those are like bookends to the story. And every point of the story has a little, uh, a little mirror for itself. And so it sort of points to what happens at the very center of this story. What is the very middle of this episode that is bracketed with Isaac's age? The very center is the answer to Rebecca's lament. 
Yahweh speaks. That is the emphasis as you read this, this text in the original language. The emphasis is right there in the middle of the story. Yahweh speaks. That is a big deal. God gives revelation to Rebecca. He answers her question. And it really is remarkable. We see it in verse 23. This remarkable answer from God by way of Hebrew poetry. It comes in four lines. Uh, Each one of them are short, but they reveal just a little more information than the last. So I wouldn't call it a riddle, but it's it's certainly a a, a short uh, type of poetry. And it just comes one, one fact reveals a little more after the next. Two children in the womb. Okay, that's some information we didn't know before. We knew, but Rebecca didn't. Two children in the womb, but they will be divided. They're, they're not going to be knit together and, and, and best friends. They're divided. So two children in the womb, they will be divided. They'll differ in their strength. And it will be in favor of the younger. And that, of course, is a whole other puzzle that we get, to, we get to figure out. As we observed, God was never obligated to give any news to Rebecca. It was completely out of grace that he gave any information at all. But before we try to unravel this puzzle that he's, that he's spoken, I want us to just note two things. Number one, Rebecca now knows that there are twins and that they're in conflict. And that revelation, I'm sure, sheds light on what she's going through. But notice, it does nothing to end the suffering. She has more information, but she does not stop suffering. I think we would be good, do well to note that. Sometimes our, our suffering, our, our situations that we face are, are so burdensome that we feel like the why would just solve everything. It often doesn't. It doesn't mean the suffering ends. It gives some clarity but it does not end at the suffering. There's no suggesting in the text that her suffering ceases after hearing from God. Moreover, Rebecca has now received news that is mysterious and alarming. Now, that's probably not a good addition to her situation in her present state, to receive alarming and, and, and puzzling news. And the implication of this message from God is that this troubled pregnancy is just the tip of the iceberg. There is going to be conflict and striving that's going to go on and on and on. So poor Rebecca, she, she finally knows the reason for her suffering, but the answer doesn't bring relief. It only brings the promise of more hardship. And so I think we have to ask, what, what can we make of this in our own suffering? And so I would just go back to the question of the heart. Are we seeking to question and blame God in our asking why? Or does our suffering drive us away from him? How could he do this to me? That, that sort of thinking. Or does the suffering drive us to him? Are we seeking the comfort that comes from drawing near to the one who knows the answers to the questions that plague us? When God ordains season of su- seasons of suffering in your life, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. You may not be able to consult an oracle or a prophet, but you do have the necessary tools. You have his word. You have wise counsel, you have prayer, you have the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It's not likely that he will answer from from heaven verbally with Hebrew poetry. That's probably not how he's going to answer you. But even if he doesn't uh, reveal the answer for your if thus why, you can know for certain that drawing near to him is for your good. 
You may even come to thank him for what it was that drew you to him. Thirdly, trusting God's word and seeing the order of all things. Verse 24, the rest of chapter 25, really the rest of Genesis, is the working out of the news that God revealed in this single verse. In verse 23, two nations divided and, and the older will serve the younger. From, from 24 on, we're just working that out. We're just trying to figure out, okay, how can these things be? What God said was like a puzzle. How, how, how can this come about? And so in 24, we have this beautiful word in the Hebrew, hine. Hine. It means behold. Behold. We have taken our knowledge of the twins for granted since the narrator sort of told us, mentioned that they're children plural back in verse 22. But now Rebecca and Isaac can see that there's this, this visible and tangible confirmation of what the Lord does. And this is the, the verse. It's, it says, behold, there were twins. And the new living Lambert, it's going to be rendered, what do you know? <laughs> twins. God knew what he was doing. And of course, I'm making light because it seems strange to us to verify the things that God said. If he said it, then that's what it is, right? But that, th- these people are living in this situation. And we need to remember that the next time we're the ones who are suffering and God has promised something and we come through to say, Hene, behold, God was right. Yes, you are right. And so this tangible confirmation of the twins is an important first step. God was right about there being two. And that's like the planting of a seed, right? The two part is obvious. He's right about the rest of it too. Two nations differing in strength in favor of the younger. It's all going to work out the way he said it would. Though then to Isaac and Rebecca, as they welcome these boys into the world, they would have found that completely mysterious and, and really improbable. How, how could these things be? It doesn't take long for the character of the boys to be displayed. In fact, it happens instantly. We see uh, the very beginning of God's prophecy coming to pass. The boys are named. Uh, Esau was first. He was covered with hair. The word Esau probably is connected to the roughness of being handled. So he he felt rough. Uh, And so Esau is the name that he receives. And the younger brother grabbed hold of Esau's heel, already trying to pull him back and take his place Uh, And so he was named Jacob, which is supplanter or heel grabber. Um, Commonly we say trickster, right? He's he's up to something trying to accomplish this. And he is already, even as an infant, a newborn babe, he is on a single-minded mission to become the son of inheritance. That is all Jacob wants in the world, is to become the son of inheritance. And this is the final twist in the story. We already answered the question, what if there is no heir? That was Abraham's story and Isaac was the answer. Now we have the new question, what if there's more than one? What happens now? Which one will be the bearer of the promise to Abraham's descendants? If you'd asked even the wisest of uh, Isaac and Rebecca's counselors, they wouldn't have hesitated for an instant. Listen, we got that figured out. We already know. It's the oldest. It's simple. The one who was first, he's the heir. What, what's the problem? We have, a, we have a way to deal with that. 
The firstborn is the heir. The firstborn is the child who uh, receives the, the share, the greatest share of the, of the inheritance and the blessing. And so um, we would say that's simple, but here we see evidence again of how God loves to confound the wisdom of men. And every, every now and then he just says, no, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be like this because I'm God and I say so and that's my purpose. And so the firstborn this time will not be the heir of promise. The older will serve the younger, just as he said. And this story, this family continues on in the most broken fashion. There's jealousy and favoritism and deceit and division. Jacob conspires to take the birthright from Esau. Isaac plans to give the blessing to Esau anyway. By the way, not because he's older, but just because he likes him better. Why does he like him better? Because he feeds Isaac better. That's why he's going to get the blessing. Rebecca, in a move reminiscent of her brother Laban, sets Jacob on this course to deceive his father by pretending to be Esau, taking advantage of Isaac's blindness. Enraged, Esau swears to wait for the death of his father and then kill his brother. So Jacob flees Canaan for Haran and Laban's people. You think your family's got problems? It's been said that Isaac and Rebekah were the worst parents in the Bible. <laughs> I'm not sure that's true. I think we may be overlooking Jephthah who sacrificed his daughter and Herod who killed his sons before they had a chance to kill him to protect his throne. But it's awful close, isn't it? It's awful close. And here's the point. No matter all this maneuvering on the part of the boys or the parents, what God says in the message to Rebekah is proving true. It is going to happen because God said so. Esau is born first, but proves himself unworthy of the promise. Now, I'm not going to start a, a second sermon here, I, I, I promise, but I want, you to, I want you to look down at the bottom of this chapter to the next story about the boys, uh, because this is a seed that I want to plant that's going to uh, come, uh, we'll come back to it in our journey through Romans. And so I want to just kind of look at how this, this next little section plays out. If you look down at verse 31 and 32 of chapter 25, and I'll just paraphrase. This is when Esau comes in from the field and he's famished and he wants some of the stew. You might be tempted to say, like, you know, this is just the boys have to learn how to share. Right? Like, give me some of the stew. No, I don't want to. It's way deeper than that. There's a lot going on in the passage. Jacob reveals in this passage his single-minded I would say shameless ambition, shameless desire for the birthright. He ought not even ask for this. This this is not something he should even be contemplating. I want to take your place. And so there's some debate about how this all came to, could a birthright really be sold like this and under what conditions and who had to agree to it? Jacob doesn't care. He doesn't care for one minute. He will have it at any cost. I don't care what it costs. I don't care who I have to deceive. I don't care what it takes to get it. I want it. I want the birthright. Esau, on the other hand, is willing to part with it for a bowl of beans. He doesn't value it. He he would let go of it for something else, something as insignificant as a bowl of stew. And so this really isn't about the stew It's really about so much more than just the birthright itself. This is about faith. This is about trusting the promise of God. So if you look at verse 32, Esau says this, 
chapter 25, verse 32, Esau says, if I starve to death and die, what good to me is the birthright? I would just say this about that question. That's not the question of the one who has the birthright. It's the wrong question. Do you know what the right question is? The right question of the one who has the birthright is, since I am the son of promise and God is faithful to my father Abraham, my father Isaac, and has promised the things that he has promised, how is it that I will escape this situation with my life? Or if I do indeed die, will he not raise me back to life? That's the question of the one who has the promise. It's not arrogant. It's not, I can't die. It's God is faithful to the promise. He is, he is working through me. I have every confidence in God. And instead, he says, look, I'm going to die if I, if I don't have sustenance. So the birthright is worth little to me. And we see that contrasted against Jacob's shameless ambition to get the birthright. So Esau didn't say any of that. He said, Jacob, your bowl of beans is more useful to me. That's why such strong language is used in the final verse. If you, if you look on down, skip on down there to the final verse of this section. Thus Esau despised his birthright. It, it doesn't mean that he hated it. It means that he misvalued it. He, he counted it lowly. He, he counted it as expendable, disposable. In Romans 9, where we're going to come with Pastor Jim soon, Pastor, uh, Pastor Jim will be preaching on this in, in the coming uh, uh, time, and I, I'm grateful that we had an opportunity to look at this text so that this will be familiar. But when we get there, we're going to see Paul sums up this whole story about Jacob and Esau that we've been looking at today as a part of redemptive history in the, in the, in a part of God's sovereign will if you want to turn there, Romans 9, it's verses 10 through 15. I'll, I'll read it for us. If you want to turn, uh, I'll wait for you to have a chance to get there quickly. Romans 9, verses 10 through 15. This is what Paul says. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls... She was told, meaning Rebecca, she was told, the older will serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So again, despite all the human manipulations that we see in Genesis 25 to confer the birthright to one son or another, it's God's will that's ultimately done. And just as we said, behold, when Rebecca gave birth to the twin boys, as if to say, behold, God was right. This episode with the stew, this, this part of the story with the selling of the birthright is the behold for the rest of the prophet. Behold, God was right. Esau is not the, he is not the child of promise. He he is not the heir to the promises. Behold, God knew what he was talking about. God said what was true. And so Isaac did what he wanted to do in trying to bless Esau. Rebecca did what she wanted to do in putting Jacob up to deceive his father. Esau did what he wanted to do in selling the birthright. 
All these actions are not without their consequences. All of them have consequences, but they don't thwart the sovereign purpose of God. He has already purposed what would come to pass for Israel's good and for his glory. And so all of this, again, is to say that even when we can't see, actually, it's especially when we can't see, especially when we can't see, we can't imagine how his promises could possibly work out in the real world with the things that we're experiencing. The call is to trust him. The call is to know that what he has said is true, even when there's no way to reconcile it in your mind. There's no way to see how the outcome could possibly be what God said it was. It will be what he said it was. So trust him. Trust him at his word. Know that he is the one who orders all things. Well, what word, you may ask? You know, you aren't Abraham, and um, that's true, and and, Abraham. we might ask the question, well, what promises has he made to me that I can trust and say, okay, I can't see the end of my story. I can't see what's next. I can't see that next big challenge that's coming, but you're saying I should trust his promises. What promises? Promises like you're a fellow heir with Christ, that your share in the sufferings is so that you'll also be glorified with him. Your, your, Your promise that Um, All things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. You've been promised that nothing shall separate you from the love of God. He has promised you that whatever you suffer in this life, whatever you suffer in this life is a light and momentary affliction that is not worth comparing to the weight of glory that's going to be revealed. You've been promised that. And so how can those things possibly be true when you're walking through criticism or conflict or cancer or anything? That's your Hebrew moment. That's when it's your turn to say, I can't see, but I'll say yes. I can't see how this could possibly work out, but I will say yes to God. When it seems most improbable or even impossible that he could work any good out of what you're going through or any glory for himself out of what your trial is, you can trust him because he said so. And behold, he's right. He is faithful. He is true. Well, I pray the Lord would use this message this morning to challenge you in a couple of ways, just by way of application. Maybe you're that kind of personality your brain is wired in that, that particular way that you're very uncomfortable not being able to see the mechanics. How, how is it all, gonna, what's the flow chart? How is it all going to work out in the end? And if that's you this morning, I would urge you to seek your peace, to, to find your rest as it, as it were, not in the answer to the conflict, not in the answer to your why thus. Seek your peace and your rest in the one who has the answer alone. He has it. I guess what I mean by that is, let that be enough for you. I don't have the answer to why, but I know the one who has it. Chris Rice, songwriter, has this great little line in one of his songs. He says of God, he holds an exclamation point for every question mark. Could you let yourself, could you allow yourself to believe that today? Whatever great, big, overarching question there is in your, in your life, in your journey right now, he has an exclamation point for that question. 
Maybe what you really desire is a reason why you need that cause and effect relationship for the things that you're facing. I would urge you to think of Rebecca and remember that just getting the answer to the why may not end the suffering. It, 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 it may not bring about the end to your suffering. And in fact, it, even if it did, it won't bring about the end of all your suffering. Coming through one trial uh, and getting an answer for it doesn't mean there won't be another one. But coming through a trial and learning to rest in the person of Christ, oh, that'll take you far. That'll take you far. God's faithful. The next problem is always right around the bend, but he's faithful to walk around the corner with you. Maybe today you just needed a reminder that God's working out every detail for his glory and for your good. I need that reminder all the time. I'm so immature, I need it when light turns red. He's working this out. Be patient. He's working this out for his glory and for your good. He's promised as much in his word and he never breaks his promise. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, since we all are promised some degree of suffering in this life, let your suffering drive you to him, not away from him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this story um, of uh, Rebecca and Isaac and the birth of Jacob and Esau from your word. Lord, I pray as we think about how these stories from your word teach us, not, not in the way that a fairy tale uh, gives us some, some lesson we can tie a bow on and, and try to remember, but we see your faithfulness. We see your truthfulness. We see your character. We see your strength. We see your, um, we see your promises come true right before our very eyes. So Lord, help us to learn to walk in that way. Help us to learn that whatever trial we face, whether it be something small that we think wrongly that we can handle in our own strength, or whether it be something that's just completely beyond anyone, help us learn to trust you, to follow you, and to rest in you. Lord, Would you move among the hearts of your congregation this this morning and do a work in each one of us. Show us where our faith is lacking. Show us where our obedience is missing. And may we respond to you. Church family, we're going to stand and sing. I'll be here at the front. If there are needs on your heart, you're welcome to come.